we as a human, our last stance is protecting our intelligence because our intelligence has brought us from prehistoric era to this era today. But at this point, we are slowly losing our intelligence. But once we lose our intelligence, we will turn into that cluster for these big tech companies who have profiled us in a way that we just become a data point. So let's not become a data point. Let's be human. Let's retain our creativity, intelligence, and humanity for all. Welcome to Insert Human. I'm Chris Colbert. As the former managing director of the Harvard Innovation Lab, I realized many things. And one of the things I realized is that the pace of technology-driven change is faster, far faster, than most organizations and most people's ability to change. That gap equals risk, vulnerability, and eventually long-term viability. And it's a particularly troubling gap in the three sectors that underpin modern society, banking, education, and healthcare. It's the biggest existential threat they have, and by extension, we have. Closing the gap requires transformation, and transformation requires a much better understanding of ourselves, because at the end of the day, all transformation is human transformation. That's why I created Insert Human, a weekly conversation with brilliant people about better understanding us, and in doing so, shrinking the gap and increasing the chances of a better outcome for all. Before we dive into today's episode, an offer to all the listeners who are leading some sort of transformation effort. I've learned that the key to a successful transformation, organizations big or small, begins with adopting seven critical habits. And while most of the leaders I've met have nailed some, rarely have I seen any honed to an innate, really effective level. To find out how you're doing with the seven habits, you can get my guide the seven habits of highly transformative leaders at chriscolbert.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all the insert human listeners around the world. Thank you for piping in today. And thanks to my guest, Sharon Matthew. Before I introduce him, I just want to provide a little context. Somebody the other day asked me, well, what exactly is insert human about? You know, I've, I've listened to one show and that was interesting. And then I listened to another show and it's sort of very different. And like, what, what is the thread that ties it all together? And the thread that ties it all together is understanding our humanity and understanding how technology and other forces have potentially pushed our humanity to the back seat, or in some cases, the trunk of the car. And what I'm trying to do in my work, both in the podcast, in the speaking, and the writing that I do, is to bring the human into the driver's seat and make more of our actions, more of our decisions, more of our innovations, call it human first. And that's really what the show is all about, whether the context is very personal, or the context is at a systems level, at a governing level, at a corporate level. I think becoming more human first is essential to the healthy future of our species and the planet that we rely on. So I just want to clarify that. And it's a perfect segue to today's guest, Sharon Matthew. So I met Sharon through a friend of a friend who I would call, I would call Sharon a revolutionary. I call her this friend that introduces a revolutionary, all people that are trying to bring more human understanding into the equation. Sharon, by background, is a former IBM AI lead at Microsoft Global Business Services. 
I think as importantly, and really what we're going to talk about today, he's the founder of an organization called Public Intelligence, which is defined as a social enterprise organization designed to prevent social imbalance and disruption that impacts everyone. And I think it truly does impact everyone. I love this sentence. At Public Intelligence, we prioritize people's and the planet's need by embedding it at the heart of the new design process. And then the last piece is we challenge the purpose of driverless taxis, farmerless farming, teacherless teaching, and dancing robots. And I love that line. So Sharon, thank you for being on the show. And I just want to start with a little bit about your background and how you found yourself to this public intelligence place. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me on the show, Chris. It's a great honor to share something that is so close to my heart. My passion for tech uh, started way back when I was young. You know, my dad used to be almost engineer working with electronics and all sorts of stuff. And he was pretty much an inventor of all sorts of crazy toys that I would request. He would just make it with scraps. Well, it inspired me to take the path of being a uh, an engineer or inventor. And uh, when I was uh, doing my undergrad degree, I built a robot from scratch, from scrap. And this was early 2000s, where in the era of globalization, no one gave a damn about having robots to save people, robots to save single mom from threats. No one wanted a robot that did surveillance or prevented war. So it was just a, you know, a dream graduation project for me. Mm-hmm. Just about worked for like 10 minutes <laughs> uh, after working hard for over a year. And it almost broke my heart. And I got into the mm. lovely world of IT. I have to ask a question. Did you name the robot? Yeah, Gabriel. Gabriel. I called the robot Gabriel, the angel. Like the angel, angel. right? Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. And uh, that's what I did. The robot was... Uh, a guardian for humanity or anyone in in trouble. Mm. So that inspired me to always build something that was ethical, that was uh, creative and intelligent use of technology. So I've always been a big advocate of that and passionate about it. And that showed in my, you know, two decades of working in this IT world where, you know, with cloud and cloud-based AI, I would go and build something clever. And I was always always, always, you know, building something cutting edge. And yeah, here I am today uh, with years worth of IT experience, building large data platform and AI solutions for large corporate guys. I figured out that, wait a minute, we're doing something wrong. We're using the power of tech to make things, you know, like rich, richer, or sell stuff that I would personally wouldn't consume and we were micromanaging people with with data and I, I just realized wait a minute this is unethical and the intelligence governance was not defined we had just about gdpr in place right that protected everyone's information but there was nothing that was protecting intellectual human rights and this is where i had that eureka moment and i said someone needs to do something and this, well, let me this, just interject here. This is sure. a distinction. As you, you mentioned the GDPR, which is really about data, pri- primarily about data privacy. Yeah. So you saw the need for a distinction and, and an effort against, call it the intellectual value of data and personal data, not simply the data itself. Is, is that, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Is that, is that what we're, we're talking about? That's precisely the point. Because GDPR, for example, will protect your email address, phone number, you know, your address, zip code social security number, for instance. That's great. You can change all of this. You can change your name, 
number, email address, your housing address, everything, right? However, you cannot change your behavior. You cannot change your voice. You cannot change the way you emotionally react. And when these type of sensitive confidential data, which is currently not defined, gets recorded, right? And, and this is highly sensitive. Other thing is, our intelligence is highly sensitive data. The way a taxi driver drives in New York, it's a sensitive intelligence curated over years. The way Cristiano Ronaldo kicks a ball, that is sensitive intelligence curated over years. Someone making perfect stakes, someone doing the perfect surgery procedures, all of this is sensitive intellectual information or, or data that's been saved in our neurons, which we call intelligence, right? That's what makes us stand mm -hmm. out. That's mm -hmm. what gets us Thanks jobs. Perfect. That's what, yeah, that's what makes us valued, right? I might be perfect at something because I've done that over and over again. My neurons are trained and even simple things like, you know, we all know how the Union Jack looks like, a flag looks like, a symbol looks like. We know a name of a person. This is all ingrained in our, in our neurons. So our intelligence is really sensitive. Someone goes and tweaks, takes, fiddles, meddles, and really abuses this intelligence. Right now, we don't have any intellectual rights because of which deep fake is okay. People are making building deep fake and pushing that out. Fake news is okay because fake news is manipulating and changing our neurons and our intelligence. So right now there is no human rights that stops the curation of intelligence without our consent. No one is protecting the manipulation of our intelligence and no one is even taking the ownership of how they manage this transfer of intelligence. But isn't it, I mean, that's a rich, deep, heavy sort of construct which I immediately gravitate to, which is why I said you have to be on the show. But isn't <laughs> it, sort of the societal view is it's it's all up to you, that it's up to the individual in terms of whether they allow an intrusion into their intelligence, whether they allow false data into their neurons, that there is no role for, call it systems level governance. It's all up to you. But are you proposing that's not, right that's not sustainable that's not that's not actually going to ultimately work and with with the advances in ai the intrusion capacity becomes even more kind of significant does that make sense to you absolutely so uh, let's look at the pwc's report and that said globally 40 percent of the jobs will be automated by 2030. now that is a big number, big number. that's like nearly 50 percent of the learning jobs could be you know automated. And if that's the forecast, what are we going to do about it, right? And how are we going to retrain or upskill that workforce in next decade or so, so that they could retain some sort of living or upskill themselves to a next level of uh, employment? And this is where the big question of us being aware of what happens to our intelligence is, is highly essential and it's critical. And we all need to be aware of that, that over the decades, every human, all of us, we dominated this planet because of just one ingredient, our intelligence. That was our advantage. And to give you an idea, our intelligence has helped us in many ways from prehistoric era mm -hmm. all the way to the Silk Route. Silk Route was built because China had that intelligence about how silkworm 
made the silk. They kept that secret for centuries. Someone knowing something more than someone else, like for example, Mongols had the advantage of using bow and arrow, and they dominated the world. Romans had the advantage of using hide and making almost bulletproof or arrowproof armors and, and building stone-based architecture and making mortar. That gave them that advantage. Anyone having inf- intelligence gives the other party that advantage. Mm-hmm. From a societal point of view, we all have this societal intelligence that we don't realize that we're slowly surrendering, surrendering it to technology. For example, mm-hmm. farmerless farming, right? Farming across the world is the same. But imagine if someone somewhere decides to automate farming completely and builds an automated farming process. If this could be taken global, it impacts every farmer in the world without their will to surrender their jobs. Mm -hmm. So when we make innovations like this that impact society, you need to take society's view in terms of how do you use this? How do you commercialize this? Now, intelligence by doing so becomes a commodity. And if this commodity goes in wrong hands, that is a threat. Now, let's talk about driverless taxi, right? If, let's say, Tesla sells all these cars to Uber to run as a driverless taxi, this is a global threat to taxi profession because Uber, they don't own any taxi drivers. They subscribe to the intelligence to deliver that service. So they subscribe, they pay these taxi drivers for their intelligence. But when someone just commoditizes this intelligence and makes it a product that they could just add to basket 100 times, 1,000 times, and they just check out, Mm -hmm. that is where the society gets extremely disrupted without making any informed awareness that, hey, the jobs will be gone. But they don't know. They don't know. No one. No one's aware of that. So awareness is a challenge. It seems like there's this sort of two sides to this. One is like we're talking about with GDPR, protecting intelligence. Yep. At both an individual and a systems level, and then the other version of that is what you alluded to, which is evolving intelligence to ensure relevance. So I'm a taxi driver, and I have developed a certain intelligence capacity to be able to navigate the streets of whatever, or be able to know like just how to not have accidents. I don't know. And then that gets basically made obsolete by, you know, autonomous vehicles, what have you. So therefore, I need to evolve my intelligence to a new form of value, a new form of relevance. I think that the struggle I have in that is that if the vast majority of jobs in the world are, I'm going to call it mostly mechanistic, mm-hmm. which I think is, I don't have data, but I intuitively that makes sense to me. And mechanistic jobs can be replaced by robots and intelligent technologies. Can we imagine a world where the vast majority of people who no longer have access to mechanistic jobs can evolve quickly enough to take on, call it humanistic jobs that require, you know, call it more more distinct, more nuanced, more, call it complex forms of value creation. And that's where I struggle because that is a sea change for the vast majority of people who work today, that they're not equipped for that the education system doesn't prepare them for that absolutely so does that necessarily push us back into the protection state because i think there's a techno utopians who say it's all going to work out just great (laughs) you know 40 percent of the jobs will disappear but somehow magically all those people that are out of work all the taxi cab drivers will find their way into another vocation yeah and i'm like (laughs) 
Anybody got ideas on where the volume of those new vocations are going to come from? Because yeah. I mean, you, how many data sciences can the world support? Because that's what you see. You see these very typical lists of, well, you know, it's going to, we're going to need data scientists and we're going to need UX designers. And, but, but these to me are, they're big industries, but they don't replace all those lost, call it purely mechanistic jobs that the robots are now capable of doing. I don't know. That's a rant. I don't, <laughs> I guess my fundamental question is, are you a protectionist or are you a next generation vocationist on this topic you know? uh, yeah i'm a bit of a buff and i think this is where we we have put that public intelligence framework in place the re reason for that is ai will disrupt uh, or any intelligence systems uh, when when they are launched without managing the disruption it will disrupt so that's given mm -hmm. so when cloud was launched you saw what happened. You saw when mobile phones were launched, you know what happened. When blockchain was launched, we saw what happened. So it will disrupt. And AI especially will massively create opportunities, especially in science, technology, health, communication, hospitality. At the same time, we will confine a lot of box standard stuff that we're doing currently, like administration, fintech uh, stuff, which has anything where you see process, like manufacturing is a prime example, those industry will be hit massively because there is a defined process. And process means there is defined endpoints and, and data points. And AI needs these data points to take automated actions or predict well, next me, steps. Let me, let me just interject there. I mean, virtually every industry, every company, every everything is a, is a, is a process. Exactly. I mean, exactly. Living, I mean, you know, being married is a process, like living is a process. Like th these are not random acts of whatever. They're, they're yeah. systems systems design underneath it, whether it's intentional or not, there, there are processes at play, yeah. right? Therefore, yeah. every industry, every organization, every everything. Absolutely. Is to, okay, got it. Absolutely. So AI is ruthless. It will literally impact every industry. Now, how do we manage this? That's the next thing, right? Because you can say, yeah, 40% of the jobs will be lost in next decade or so. So how do you make sure you manage that? So in our framework, we talk about fine, identify where are you taking this data or intelligence from, right? If you took this data, what's your next step? What's the purpose of this particular AI solution, right? Let's talk about, for example, farmerless farming robot, right? If you made this, you took intelligence away from some farmers who were, you know, picking up, say, strawberries. What do you do with this robot? Who gets permission to use this? Who sells this? How do you manage? Do you have a policy around this, right? Do you need to have a farming license to buy this, right? So this is how you think about this innovation from a purpose and benefit point of view. If you were being ethical, this robot will only go to farmers who already have strawberry farms and who are short of staff, or this goes to the contractors who are actually working in the farm to help them do things better, right? They're still augmenting the farmers. It's additive, not replacement. Exactly. So if you design it that way and put some policies around it, the purpose element or, or the aspect of ethics plays a major role. Now, the next step is how do you manage the disruption, right? You made a new product, right? If you manage the disruption effectively, there are seven S's that I've put in my framework about disruption. They are speed, scale, 
the systems that impact, the society that impact, the sustainability, which is what happens to the old system when you replace with the new system. How do you manage the whole, you know, the, the sentimental side, you know, the, the dependency of, you know, a generation that is waiting and trying to learn farming in the old school way. And now you've got a new robot that does that. So how do you manage this from a systemic point of view? So this robot needs to be, inf- you need to inform schools and colleges who are educating the next generation of farmers, right? So by managing the disruption, you're actually creating more business avenue for your product. That's what people don't see. Yeah. They just see, yeah, it's, it's just a, this is just a Luddite concept. This is anti-innovation. In fact, it is pro-innovation and sustainability is the crying need of the hour. Yeah. And then the next aspect is the risk. Have you done a full risk assessment with this new product? What if, you know, this robot gets some circuit issues and then what if it catches fire? Uh, what if it just starts spinning and chops something off accidentally? Yeah, yeah. You know, the risk assessment part, yeah. I thought on that one you were going to go to the place of, which I've been contemplating a lot lately, which is do humans have the capacity, the intellectual capacity to understand the potential unintended consequences. Like what I've observed about technology, not unlike its bedfellow capitalism, is we unleash these things with no governors on the engine, no No. guardrails, no guiding lights. We're just, oh, look, things are more, quote unquote, productive, economically productive. And there are some positive gains, but not for all. Let it roll. Let it rip. And clearly unintended consequences. And my question is, if we all woke up tomorrow and said, we need to do a better job of mitigating the downstream risk and reducing the unintended consequences, unintended negative consequences, I keep, I sorry, I'm just asking myself, do we have the chops to do that? Because at some point it's, it's its own form of innovation. You know, the ability to see that if we do this, if we drop this, this rock in the water, the ripples are going to go out in a bunch of different ways and impact a bunch of different things that ultimately may result in the net benefit being negative, not positive. Yeah. And just, <laughs> so when you said risk, that's exactly, you know, that's where I went. Was exactly. like, it's not just, will the robot, what happens when the robot blows up, but it's like, what happens to adjacent industries to that farmer's plot of land? You know, like, I just don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, uh, this is where I will quote Dave Waters quote, where he says, uh, the potential benefits of innovations and AI are huge. So are the dangers. And we saw this with plastic. We made plastic. We loved it. And, you know, and there was a plastic pollution in a decade or so. We all used Facebook. And in a decade or so, we saw privacy breaches and social media manipulations. So sometimes we don't see it right then and there. And that's the problem with high tech, high, you know, high speed innovations, that the disruption, especially the human disruption comes quite late. And by the time it happens, it, it's, it's and true. we respond, it, it's late. It at least takes five to 10 years. Hence the reason we, we put this framework again in place where it makes you think, it makes you think, do you think the speed at which you're releasing this product will impact or will have any risk? The scale, for example, if you're making an automated burger flipping machine, <laughs> how many people will be impacted, right? So we are asking those type of questions right now, even before they put their sketch pens and pen on, on their, you know, 
yeah. drawing board to draft this design. And that's quite powerful because they're rationalizing right this very moment. Oh, yeah, if I'm a driverless taxi, how is that old lady going to, who can't walk, get on that taxi? You know, not everyone is mobile savvy. So we bring in diversity. We bring in inclusivity. We, we bring in ecosystem. You know, what happens to the planet? What happens to the old taxis? If you are rolling out thousands of driverless cars or taxis in this case. So these are the questions we ask and it makes them slightly accountable, which is the last aspect of our framework. If you're accountable, you will think this way. And if you're accountable, you will redesign because we all reiterate and you know we build in an iterative manner. So we redesign our product all the time. So this time you redesign with ethics. So the, then the question I have is, is the intent self-governance or is the intent some sort of global governing organization that pulls your framework into the, it becomes a requirement of innovation of technological development for how have you thought about, and maybe that's the role of public intelligence as an organization, but how have you thought about, call it adoption, recognizing that particularly in the startup world, the primary measure is commercialization at the fastest possible pace with little consideration, I think, for downstream anything other than sales. So like, have you thought about sort of the adoption mechanism for a more rigorous protocol around around this? Absolutely. So we're working with governing bodies. We, we're trying to bring public awareness. We're trying to bring business level awareness as well. So I think these are the three key areas that we are trying to emphasize and share this message widely. And the idea is if we put, we're also publishing a paper for human right to intelligence. There's no no one working on this at this point. So we are probably the pioneers and I'm, I'm probably the founder of this new human right. So I'm publishing I'll this paper. I'll say probably, Sean. You are the founder, damn it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm just being humble. And it, it, it's a huge responsibility. How do you take this human right and apply this? So we are sh- sharing this paper with global regulatory bodies. We're talking you know, UNs and, and likes of at that level, international standards organizations, so that they see the value, why it's important. And this is an open paper, which means any governing body, any public body, and any human-centric uh, organization, they can just apply and reference this framework or, or this human right, which means we're trying to accelerate the adoption of this human rights. And once this is in place, it's almost like someone's drafted the regulations for GDPR and that that the policy, the law could be written on top of this. So w- w- this paper is extremely powerful with just by referencing this paper, any regulatory body, they can make AI ethical. Any public institute, they can make AI ethical. Any mm-hmm. business can just look at this and say, yeah, if I just follow human right to intelligence, I'm ethical by design. But let me, let me, let me just poke it out a little bit. So I've been following the the GDPR sort of journey over the last several years. And I actually think the EU has done a pretty good job trying to get their their handle on it, particularly as compared to the US. I mean, Tim Cook from Apple said at a conference three or four years ago, basically, we should just follow the EU on this on this topic. Like the US is is now lagging in our capacity to manage and establish the right protocols around whether it's intelligence, data privacy, kind of you name it. And, and you know, look at how our Congress struggles with even understanding what the technology is. I guess my question is at a governing level, at a global or state governance, nation state governance level, 
you mentioned regulatory bodies like within the uk what is the regulatory body that thinks it has the responsibility for call it technology management or tech you know like I don't even know what the top, what you, the category is called. Yeah, but. yeah, understood. So uh, I wouldn't say there's a there's a central body as such. Uh, it is kind of like a collaborative, you know, collective regulation at this stage because everyone's got their own way of regulating and have their own priority points. So in the UK, there's Alan Turing Institute, there's British Standards uh, Computer Institute, uh, there is the National AI Council as well. We have the Information Commissioner's Office. So some are government and some are sort of nonprofit effort. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when they all get together, I think they all have their own principles and framework. And this is where it gets a bit confusing because everyone's trying to get to some sort of consensus. And this is the biggest challenge with ethics, global ethics, right? And I think what we're trying to say is we need a global moral code and we need to make ethics transparent and open because if we had an open democratic platform where if someone said, I'm building AI and I followed these 10 rules, right, or 10, 10 aspects, and I respected that, out of which five might be related to US, seven might be related to EU, you know, three might be related to Canada, let's say, hypothetically. Mm. Wherever you are, your product is globally con- compliant. What we don't want to do is create further fragmentation in framework. So instead of creating a new framework, what we have suggested is, we curate and create a, a dynamic framework where everything seamlessly integrates with every other regulatory requirements, mm. which means you build, if you just look at one thing and that if, let's say for now, public intelligence is taking that responsibility. If you curated everything and put this in just five aspects or five principles with say 75 points underneath, which are the micro objectives or criterias, you're meeting a, a highly acceptable universal standards yeah. by default. And this this 75 points, let's say, underneath these five aspects, they represent the non-functional requirement for any technology to innovate, which is not documented. If you went to any, any regulatory body or consulting organization, this will take months to be defined. What we have done is we really curated this and made this open so that mm. ethical innovation is just a click of a button, right? They can get access to all these libraries or information and they could just design based on this. Is that to suggest within that system there's no conflict? That, that it's all sort of there's a perfect logic flow, flow from macro to macro principle to micro, you know, whatever tenant? Or is there I guess you know the, the you know the, the real issue you said something earlier is you got to start with what constitutes ethics. What is ethical? And actually I was asked to speak at a, a digital virtual conference a few weeks back and it was all about ethics and technology. And I'm like, I, you know, listen, I'm not a technologist. I'm, I'm not really anything other than an observer, but I think we have to start with the question, what constitutes ethics? But I guess my point is for many, that's an amorphous question and answer. And then how do you build sort of the definition underneath that to ensure complete logic flow, no inconsistencies, no contradictions, like, can you get to that? Maybe we need AI. Maybe that's. <laughs> we we got to realize we're building technologies for human. And if I build something here in the UK, it will be used by someone in the US, Canada or Singapore. So I have to respect that end user, that human at the other end. And this is why we had to build something absolutely open to the point where 
someone in the other end of the world could say, you know what, for us, the criteria is, you know, facial recognition is not allowed, it's not ethical for us. Yeah, just, just, yeah. And if someone voices that, we know for sure, okay, facial recognition, we've got to think about it, you know, how do we roll this out globally, right? If it's okay in China, it's not, it's not okay in, in the US, then right. we've got a problem, right? And I think we got to honor that, right? Yeah. And we as a human, we are global citizens. Uh, our products oh, yeah. are global. Hence the reason we trying to keep this as simple as possible. And ethics, I would say, is a moral code, right? We cannot define what is ethical in, in, in certain region or, or, or in certain culture is ethical in certain other region and culture. But I think what we can do is the best effort of managing each and everyone's expectation when we're trying to create a global product. Mm-hmm. Now, other other challenge that we often face is sustainability challenges that everyone's trying to build the same thing, then conflict with each other, and or sometimes they hyper-fragment the market as well. So that's another challenge that we want to manage. You're talking about within a, a particular technology or a particular Yeah, for example, okay, imagine yeah. everyone in the world hears about driverless cars and starts building driverless car at the same time using different technology. Imagine in 18 months, they all launch at the same time. That could potentially, you know, cause high market fragmentation, extreme competition, and different models delivering different level of accuracy as well. So, yeah, so we, we're trying to solve many problems like that here using, using this framework. What's the... Um... I know the the creation. When did you when did you launch public intelligence? How how recent is it? We launched the concept last year in June 2021. We've been researching about this for last couple of years, and a lot of conversations with various leading AI experts across the world. And obviously, the first question was, "Wait a minute, is there a?" open ethics management platform anywhere? Is anyone using something like that? The first answer was no. Is anyone using or talking about right to intelligence? They're like, what is right to intelligence? Right. Oh, <laughs> and and yeah. So we've been asking these questions with leading experts, corporate experts and, and standards experts. And I got two resounding no's from everyone. And yeah, we thought, let's just do it. No, as in the sense that there is no platform, like no, yeah, yeah. So that was really my question is what's been the level of receptivity? Have you seen that changing over the last couple of years? Because I certainly have, you know, the work that I've been doing four years ago, I was like out on a limb. People are like, what? Like, what are you talking, human? Like what? And now it's remarkable, you know, how many people like, you know, there's a, there are a lot of people sort of I just was reading a, 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 somebody sent me something this morning and there's an organization called HX and it's a human experience and the whole idea, and they're, they're trying to create a new category of basically the same idea of human first understanding, human first innovation, putting all technology through the filter of what serves humankind best. I'm just, I assume you're, you're getting greater and greater receptivity as the days go by. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, that's fair to say. And to the point where this concept of human right to intelligence is so advanced that uh, I had to build a website, I had to publish a white paper, I had to make a documentary film about the concept and really, really simplify the whole, the ethical implementation side of things and really create that library that any technical person or product developer or researchers or students, they could just go and apply this 
And, and, and the beauty of this is this is open. And during all this conversation, I think one thing became really clear about ethics is it was not the tech. It was also not the capitalism. The real problem was it was lack of awareness that we don't have human rights to our own intelligence. And that was the real risk. So if you all knew, oh, wait a minute, I'm giving my intelligence away that I worked hard for decades to become the best version of, you know, me as a footballer or as a doctor or as mm-hmm. a professor. I've worked hard to build these neurons, this intelligence to deliver the perfect pitch. And AI records that and becomes it becomes digital. Once it's digital, we know what happens, copy paste, and, and then it becomes a commodity. That in, It becomes a commodity for someone else. And that's it. You just transferred what you have built and curated and learned over the years. Mm. Yeah, so I think we have to really, as a human being, really understand our creativity, our knowledge, our decision-making in situations like, you know, crossing the road or, you know, when to flip the stake or when to take that turn. It's, it's human intelligence. And, and we have to ultimately be accountable and be protective about how do we manage that and share that. So, yeah. Which is a perfect segue to my last question. I try to, when I have guests on the show, I try to always end with what can the listener do, you know, to make it as practical and actionable as possible. And so what would you advise the listeners across the world? By the way, one of the most wonderful things about my show is 50% of the listeners are not US based. So it's like, and last month I had listeners from 60 different countries, which is just crazy amazing but my question for you on behalf of them is what can what can they do what can i do i mean in addition to how the, can they follow you how can they read more about it like what can they do that's a very interesting question and you know listeners you have the power right there is seven billion plus people on the planet and there is only you know one innovation that can probably cause a risk to the planet right so it's seven billion versus just a few handful of unethical AI innovations. So you have to leverage the power of people. You, it, the power is in your hands. And I think hence the reason you have to believe in yourself that you have right to intelligence, period. You've got to believe in that. And, and when you're giving your data away or when someone's building an AI system, really challenge them, you know, hey, what are you doing? Can you can you explain what this whole black box AI or this technology is? Why don't we have the rights to you know know where our data and intelligence sits? And these are the things that you you should openly challenge. If you don't know much about right to intelligence, I have published a paper, published a documentary film on publicintelligence.org. It's open to all, so feel free to go and consume that knowledge. And the idea is to share this awareness with any tech leader, any regulatory body, any people-centric institute. We're talking UNs and and human-centric organizations out there. It's important that we put ethics at the heart of any design. The reason for that is we, as a human, our last stance is protecting our intelligence because our intelligence has brought us from prehistoric era to this era today. But at this point, we are slowly losing our intelligence. But once we lose our intelligence, we will turn into that cluster for these big tech companies who have profiled us in a way that, okay, 
I know this type of people are in so much debt. These type of people consume this amount of bread. We just become a data point. So let's not become a data point. Let's be human. Let's retain our creativity, intelligence, and humanity for all. That's my message to all. I know no better way to close the show. Sharon, thank you so much for being with me on Insert Human today. Thank you for the great work that you're doing. I'm, I'm looking forward to our relationship over the years ahead. One of the things I, I mentioned to you, I think, is my intention is to uh, start an organization called thehumanrevolution.org, which is about uh, really about aggregating all the people and all the organizations, including you, who are pushing forward with this human-first agenda across many different industries but with the intention of uh, getting everything you just said, you know, getting us back in the driver's seat, uh, ensuring that the future for our children, the future for future generations is a healthy, meaningful future. So thank you for the work and uh, yeah, look forward to continuing the conversation. Likewise. Thank you, Chris. And thank you for listening. Thanks for listening today. Wherever you are as a leader on your transformation journey, you'll find more helpful resources at chriscolbert.com. From more podcast episodes and my film talks from around the globe to my blog and books. And if you're a CEO or leader interested in getting my advice, you can reach me there too. Just head over to chriscolbert.com. Thanks for listening.